So this week, this week we will talk about failures and things in our CVs that we typically don't talk about. And we have a special guest today, Yuri. Yuri is currently working as a senior machine learning scientist at Elsevier. His main focus at work is uh, natural language processing. And you might already know Yuri from uh, mlcourse.ai, which is an awesome uh, machine learning course. It's open and you can go check it out. And uh, for those uh, who don't know, uh, Yuri is the mastermind behind this course. And funny thing, um, a couple of months ago, we had an interview with Xenia about transitioning from project management to uh, data science. And she mentioned that course. And on that day, I thought it's a very good idea to actually write to Yuri and invite him to this podcast. And finally, uh, this day happened. So we have Yuri uh, today. Hi, Yuri. Welcome. Yeah. <clears throat> Hi, Alexey. Yep. Thanks. Yeah, it's very cheerful here in The Hague. And um uh i'm pretty pretty happy to join you this friday afternoon and uh yeah i'm always uh, fond of talking about career and all, all this stuff so i'm happy to share this experience although the topic is a bit controversial so it might hurt some marketing interest of some of the companies but yeah i was pretty careful here <laughs> so i don't promise that i'll answer all of the questions but uh, i'm yeah as as open as possible yeah, let's start. So, uh, and we'll start with your background. Um, can you tell us about your career journey so far? Um, yeah, so, yeah, even earlier than that, well, I lived in Israel for four years, then a year and a half in Canada, and then went back to, to Russia. So I made world around in childhood. And then I was grown up in, uh, in Russia, and uh, I was fond of aviation, and then uh, thus I joined the best Russian technical university, Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, the aviation department. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, I realized I'm fond of uh, programming. And then, well, Andrew Im was, of course, the main charismatic guy, the evangelist of the machine learning for me. And then I switched from uh, business intelligence. So I was working for some Okay, I'll tell about the project, but then I switched to PhD studies and I was full-time in academia. Uh, that was yeah, a bit crazy time, but uh, I don't regret. And uh, then I joined Russian IT giant Mail, the true group, uh, as a data scientist. Uh, and um, But I always searched for some better work-life balance, and that's why we moved to the Netherlands. And uh, through a telco operator, I further joined Elsevier and it's a good place to combine you know, research. And so it's a nice uh, compromise between academia and industry. Uh, and um, yeah, so also fond of quantum computing and quantum machine learning. So I'm, I'm really a nerd uh, in a good sense. And um, yeah, uh, I think that's it. I've got a small child, a, a, a daughter who will turn a year and a half soon. So she replaced all of my hobbies <laughs> so I cannot do the hobbies anymore. So this is something you need to remove from your CV if you had this section about hobbies, right? Yeah, yeah, no more, <laughs> no more hobbies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, if we ever have uh, an episode about quantum computing, I know who to invite to talk about this now. Okay, I'll invite, <laughs> I'll invite some more serious guys. <laughs> okay. I'm here. here. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so did you find the work-life balance you were looking for? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, here in Netherlands, yeah, they, they don't uh, die at work, and uh, I enjoy that. Okay. 
<laughs> yeah. So the topic today is things we don't share in our CVs. And we all have stories about failed projects. I certainly have a couple. And uh, maybe I will, I will even tell one or two uh, during today. Um, but yeah, since you're, uh, you are the guest today, so probably uh, I will ask you for a couple of stories. One pattern I observed in my career that uh, we as data scientists uh, tend to spend a lot of time on things, uh, on projects that did nowhere. So we work for a couple of months or something even more, and then the project uh, turns out to be useless, and then we just waste time. So do you have uh, any stories like that in your, uh, in your experience? Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the recent stories is a side project for for a proofreading service. Uh, so, so basically, yeah, if you want to improve the English language in your paper, you can, you can order uh, the service, which is pretty expensive, I guess. And uh, uh, the question was to, to automatically assess, yeah, at least preliminary, the quality of uh, the language quality in a given document. Uh, and uh, uh, so it's kind of grammarly if you think about it but more into scientific domain so it's like some sort of scientifically fine-tuned grammarly and uh, uh, in our company we already had some solution and uh, uh, when I just joined uh, I just I realized that oh, well it's the classifier that we the, that my colleagues built was very close to noise. This the, the signal that it produced, the binary classification of whether an article is well written or badly written, that was really close to noise when accurately measured. And then I spent uh, a couple of weeks. Of course, I tried a couple of ideas. So the task was so the proofreading service had a really large data set with uh, some original paragraphs and then rewritten paragraphs. Uh, so. Yeah, these services are typically outsourced to the Philippines or India. And so I can't say that it's a golden data set, but still uh, some clumsy phrases are typically well corrected. And then, yeah, if you think about it, you can train a sequence to sequence model that would just rewrite the original sentence, but it's, um, it's rocket science in this sense. You cannot really expect such a sequence to sequence model to produce well um, as uh, yeah, structured language. So. My colleagues uh, uh, worked on a binary classification task. So I turned this into, into regression problems. So we can measure distance, some distance between the pre-edited and the edited version of the text. So let's say Levenstein distance. And then you can predict this uh, Levenstein distance with a, with a BERT model. So uh, they provided some four or five fine-tuned language models. I don't know why so many. And I ran, ran a couple of experiments uh, yeah, with BERT regressor to predict this distance. So basically how much a paragraph needs to be edited. And uh, we, we organized a couple of experiments. So just an annotation experiment between me and my uh, American, yeah, so uh, native, native speaker. So we, we ran through uh, 50 examples each. And then the conclusion was that our model is uh, about 60% uh, accurate. So in terms of precision. So the idea was that it would highlight a piece of text for, for the customer uh, um, flagging that, hey, this paragraph is badly written. So maybe you would like to use our proofreading service. And then such a high highlight would be just 60% precise. <laughs> and considering that it's a BERT model, which is just a black box, I insisted on closing the project. And the problem with the project was that it, it was, pre um, 
yeah, prematurely advertised very heavily. So like the company was waiting for a solution so hard and even data scientists, my colleagues promoted uh, this model like LACWA language quality assessment. They called it LACWA brain, like introducing AI to your project, blah, blah, and this shit. And uh, well, that was a silly thing to do, honestly, because uh, well, you, you don't, you, uh, you wouldn't actually advertise your model so hard unless you know that it's brilliantly good. So it's just, you know, hitting up this AI hype. Uh, and yeah, that's a story about yeah, failing fast. So I um, summoned all our product owners, my boss, and then just recommended to drop any attempts to build such a, such a service. Uh, because it, these are the things that are not done with uh, one middle, one junior data scientist, and maybe one senior. So for, for this task, you need a, a group of linguists and a Grammarly team is pretty large and they, they've built their service in several years. So um, yeah, my recommendation was to, to use third-party tools from, from mm -hmm. that moment. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so this actually was uh, the opposite example. So this is uh, an example when instead of spending a lot of time, on uh, working on something uh, like uh, I don't know four or six months, you notice it pretty earlier. Then you collected all the, you got all the stakeholders and you told them, hey, uh, folks, this is not going anywhere. Let's uh, let's stop it. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that that was a pretty hard decision to take because it was my first month in the company, so no one knows <laughs> me. And and then at some point, I just show up and say, hey, guys, we need to close this project. It leads nowhere. But yeah, I, uh, I had to think this presentation through. I, I think I spent the whole day actually creating this presentation because it was pretty important at that point. Okay. Yeah, we have a comment from Pierre, uh, Pierre saying that that's why having a data product manager is so important. So these are the kind of people who actually, who can say, nah, yeah, so this is not useful for, for us. We shouldn't spend time uh, doing this. And the story I, I mentioned, I also have a story, a similar story. And actually back then we didn't have a data product manager. And probably if we had, uh, things would have worked out uh, differently. But the story was, I worked at a CEO company. CEO stands for search engine optimization. And, um, so for SEO, um, the main idea is, uh, let's say you have a website and uh, for this website, you want to uh, rank for certain keywords. So let's say if you're selling monitors, if you're selling some hardware, so you want to run for to, to rank on Google when somebody enters uh, in Google monitors Berlin, you want to, to be first there. So that's the idea uh, behind SEO. Um, and yeah, so this was a SEO company. Um, and we wanted to build a keyword recommender project. So let's say we have a customer who uses some keywords um, and we say, okay, you seem to be writing about monitors. How about writing an article that would compare uh, 4K monitors uh, versus, I don't know, 8K monitors, something like this, like basically uh, giving suggestions for keywords to rank, right? And um, yeah, so, and if you think, if you think about this, this is a classic recommender system. So in a, a collaborative filtering uh, approach, so you have like this huge matrix and in this matrix you have rows, which are your users, right? You have, uh, in our case, it was clients. Then you have columns, which are items, um, like in e-commerce that could be like fonts or whatever. Uh, in our case, it was keywords. And let's say you put one, if this customer uses this keyword, right? So you have this huge matrix 
and then you use things like alternative uh, uh, least squares or things like this to uh, to basically to factorize this matrix and this way you encode your users and your uh, items in certain vector space and then you can compute similarity and find uh, and suggest for this user what are the items that could be interesting for this user so this is all great in theory and we thought okay this is straightforward we should follow this approach and we spent a couple of months training this model so uh, collecting the data, cleaning data, preparing it in the right format, then evaluating it, uh, tuning it, uh, trying different libraries. It was a lot of fun work, right? So this is what data scientists love to do. So we really love doing this kind of work, like Kaggle-like, uh, especially when there is a good data set and we had a good data set. And we had really great evaluation metrics. So after a couple of months, we go to, we present it, we say, this is uh, so cool. Let's implement this. We go to the, to the engineers who are supposed to help us. They look at this and they say, no, <laughs> there is no way we are going to integrate this into the existing, existing in, in architecture. So the problem there was that architecture was based on AWS Lambda. And for those who don't know, uh, like a couple of years ago, there was a very strict limitation on the size of the uh, uh, on the size of your project. So it, was, it should be below 50 megabytes or something like this, which is a, a pretty tough case considering how many different libraries we tried to put there. So it was, uh, it was very difficult. So we would spend, like there, we spent a couple of months more working with engineers to actually, to reduce the size of this package. We even implemented some things from scratch because uh, we didn't want to depend on some libraries because they were too heavy. And finally, we did it, and nobody wanted to use it. <laughs> so that was uh, like it was a great project, great idea. Then it, uh, some engineering challenge which we overcame, but then nobody needed it, and that was very sad, right? Uh, because uh, yeah, simply clients didn't care about this, customers didn't need these recommendations, and. Uh, yeah, so in retrospect, now uh, maybe what I would done, uh, what I would have done instead is just I would spend a few days to manually come up with these recommendations. So I would select a sample of uh, clients, and I would work with a domain expert, with some SEO specialist, to suggest some keywords for these clients, and then maybe just uh, send them emails or something like this, just test uh, if the customers are interested in these keywords. If we see that they are interested, okay, yes, we spent a couple of days verifying it. But if we see that they aren't, we spent uh, only a couple of days doing this manual work, but it saved us four months of uh, of work. So yeah. this is. Uh, so you just over-engineered, having some hypothesis that customers would like a feature, but they turned out not to like it. Well, it mm -hmm. resonates, yeah, 100% correlates with the book that I'm currently reading, Four Steps to Epiphany. So it's on startups and their business models. And they describe exactly this problem that uh, some startups, uh, um, yeah, they cherish this product uh, model, product development model, which doesn't work really well for, for startups often. And uh, it's better to switch to customer development model. And they describe exactly this approach where you start with a trial group. We, you make sure that you, you are creating a feature that uh, customers need and they are, you are solving their pain in the next and um, then you you keep iterating in the agile approach and yeah exactly this is a story 
where you've over-engineered. And there is actually a very important skill not to use machine learning mm-hmm. <laughs> that exactly. you're acquiring. Yeah. I think uh, I haven't read this book, but I heard about uh, this thing called design thinking. Maybe you heard about this. Uh, so it's about what you mentioned. It's about uh, thinking of the customer first and then going uh, from the problem they have uh, and validating things as fast as possible. Okay. And one of the things I mentioned in my story was about... Uh, this engineering part, about this infrastructure part, when engineers said, hey, no. Uh, And this is also for us data scientists, this is what we don't like. So what we like is going to Kaggle, uh, trying different models, tuning parameters, coming up with uh, nice features, with smart features. This is fun, right? But when it comes to deploying models, when it comes to the engineering part behind machine learning, then for many, uh, it's not as fun as that part. And uh, so for me, when I was uh, interested in getting into machine learning, I was actually thinking not about the engineering uh, part, but about this fun part, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I know I watched your talk, which you gave a couple of years ago, when you worked in some advertis- uh, advertising company, and you had some issues with the serving layer. And uh, yeah, so maybe you can uh, talk about this story. You can um, uh, tell us in more details what happened there. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I had exactly the same problem where you, I kept iterating on improving the model while the problem was, was lying actually in a different uh, place. And as you can guess, it was in the infrastructure around the model. So uh, yeah, that happened when I switched from my PhD studies and joined uh, mail.ru group. So it's a Russian IT giant. So, well, everyone knows Google. In Russia, we have a great Google competitor, Yandex. And Mail.ru group uh, is maybe the greatest Yandex competitor in Russia. So they they also have a search system. And uh, I think in Russia, uh, due to morphology and all the different challenges of the Russian language, so Yandex is still leading. I guess it owes something like 50% of the search market. Well, Google is very close with something like 47%. And then Mail, the true group had these 3%. But these 3% were already, yeah, huge revenue, something like, yeah, billions of rubble. So maybe dozens or maybe hundreds of millions of dollars per year. And uh, we had grading boosting uh, for this search system. So it's highly optimized C++ implementation of grading boosting. And well, you know, boosting can do classification, regression, and ranking with, with some specific losses, it's it's very good for ranking problem. And then we had the task of content recommendation. So we had several partners, so uh, websites with uh, different news or with different content, like yeah, Commerzant, Lifehacker, and you know, things like that. And uh, then you, you know these uh, uh, recommendations like more like this or see also, and then you show some uh, four or five uh, further yeah, related uh, pieces of content, and then there is an easy monetization scheme. You just replace one of the recommendations recommendations with an ad, and then here, here is clear monetization. And we had a problem that in offline experiments, in cross-validation, uh, we, we grading boosting and all the tree-based methods like random forest were very good. But then in, uh, when we deployed it in, in production in, in the online experiment, we noticed that a heuristic was actually beating uh, the gradient boosting model. And a heuristic was very simple. So in this, uh, recommend uh, yeah content recommendation tasks uh, there is a very strong baseline uh, just three letters yeah ctr so click through rate so you 
you, you show some ad or maybe some content a hundred times, you, you measure how many times it was clicked, let's say seven, and then you, you build this 7% CTR. And uh, for, for ads, CTRs are pretty low, about typically one to 3%. Uh, but if you just rank all your content by CTR, uh, in reality, you have to take care of yeah, excluding some nudity, some content which cannot be shown. But we work with partners. We, we were pretty sure that th this content can be shown. And just ranking by CTR is, very, is a very good baseline. And we, our feature, our heuristic was a based, mostly based on CTR. So it's like weekly CTR with some trend. We added a monthly CTR with some small coefficient. And then it was only binned into 10 uh, age and gender groups. Uh, so that was a fairly simple solution. And, uh, and then I iterated on improving the model. So I uh, applied active learning. I created different features. Uh, I tried to, to improve the model itself, its architecture, hyperparameters, and so on. So I just, yeah, I was still in my PhD program. So I approached the problem as a machine learning researcher. Uh, and then in some three or four months, I, was, I actually realized that it's a high loaded system and uh, the model was limited to some 80 milliseconds to, to, create a, to make a prediction. And if it fails, if it times out, you cannot show just a blank. You, you have to replace it with some uh, quick and dirty solution. And in such serious uh, yeah, production systems, they typically have uh, last hope solution. So at least in search systems, they called it last hope solution. Typically, it's a very, very reliable heuristics, like in this case, just sorting by CTR. And in the weekend, when everyone's off, you know, and uh, the main production system failed, this, this solution should work all the times. And I guess there's, there were only two cases when this last hope solution also failed. Uh, not in my practice, but uh, it's, yeah, this, this thing should work 100% reliably. Uh, and so what turned out actually is what, uh, that our gradient boosting solution was timing out at, uh, at some points in some 10% of cases. And uh, it was replaced with this last hope solution. And in the end, we, I tested not purely a gradient boosting solution, but this mixture of gradient boosting predictions with these, the, with these heuristics. <laughs> and uh, so when I fixed this, uh, it, it just rocketed. So, uh, and the fix was pretty simple. So uh, initially we also sorted all the content by CTR and gradient boosting would just re-rank top thousand documents. And I, we just replaced it with 300. So just re-ranking 300 document uh, was working exactly the same in terms of precision and recall and things like all the metrics and it was much faster. And uh, yeah, now the project is, is is bringing money and all's, all's good. Uh, but well, the lessons that I learned there is that, uh, well, first of all, I spoiled my relationships with a manager at this, at this point. So four months was too much for such a project uh, where we already had a, a working solution, a nice grading boosting model. And uh, there was a, a bit of pressure to deliver it earlier. And uh, at the time I launched uh, a side project, this open machine learning course, and I was maybe a bit distracted. And so my personal lesson learned was that, hey, sometimes you need to earn reputation and you need to work really hard on <laughs> focused on a single problem. And uh, another conclusion was that, uh, yeah, it's just going beyond your Jupyter notebook. So in a project, just go to your developers, backenders, ML ops, dev DevOps, just make sure what's happening to the model at each stage. So from data collection to training, deployment, then all the way to model lifecycle management. And just, yeah, it's good to understand uh, all the specific technical details 
uh, just to avoid such problems which are more related to infrastructure rather than to machine learning itself. Yeah, interesting. So basically, uh, so you had a smart model, but most of the time it was replaced by, the, by, by, simple, by a simple heuristic and you found out about that uh, only later or only after running these experiments. And uh, I guess you spent quite a few time trying to figure out what's going on, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, I imagine going through all these logs and then trying to uh, to figure out what's uh, what's going on there. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but these things uh, for data scientists they are not easy. Um, and I remember um, so when working with data science, uh, uh, like uh, even though I had some engineering experience uh, before, so I was previously a Java developer. I think you also had some Java experience before doing. Uh, Doing machine learning, anyways. So uh, I remember that the way I was doing things uh, was not uh, far from you know best practices. So I would uh, just SSH to the server to the production server, air quotes. Uh, so I would just SSH there, and I would do git pull, and then it would go like I I, I would have a special branch called production in my git uh, so everything that is in this branch uh, is this is the, the production code and then i would ssh to the machine to the production server and then i would uh, basically do git pull and it would pull the the latest changes and i eventually even set up a cron tab like it would it would pull automatically every minute so i wouldn't need to actually ssh to the machine it would just do this automatically and of course, every time there is some bug, uh, I don't know, even simple things like uh, syntactic mistake. Of course, I didn't have any integration test there to, to check before uh, putting there. So uh, let's say in Python, I forgot to put this uh, column, right? And then basically the thing crashes. And so I would need to SSH to the machine, revert it or do something to, to fix it. Yeah, it was annoying. Uh, and then at some point I left the company and somebody unfortunately needed to deal with all this mess. Uh, and uh, I heard many complaints, but eventually like real engineers uh, took over and redid everything with uh, uh, proper techniques like uh, CICD, uh, you know, all that. Um, I you a couple of times. Oh, I don't think it was just a couple. Uh, I think it was because <laughs> I had, uh, I still have lunches with my colleagues from there. And um, so for the they first still remember year, you. <laughs> yes, they still do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So did you have uh, anything similar in your experience? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when I switched teams in mail.ru group, uh, I, uh, I joined a predictive analytics group. And um, uh, overall, that was a very su successful project because it uh, dealt with marketing. And uh, so we had a, a business intelligence solution, so uh, an app. Uh, which would uh, create uh, nice dashboards with key marketing uh, metrics like LTV, retention, monthly users, uh, large payments. And it, it was yeah, related to mobile games. And some of the tasks were to identify uh, whales, we called them. So those players who would pay yeah, <laughs> uh, dozens of thousands of dollars per month. So just identifying highly paying uh, users. And so they had a nice uh, app creating reports uh, on these metrics. And I was the first guy to introduce predictions. So just as you create LTV reports, we, we would then create reports with LTV predictions. And uh, 
it's a funny experience because we had a, this start startup vibe in a giant company. So although that was a, a, a very large company, though in this small team, I was the first guy to, to set up machine learning pipelines to basically set, I was setting up the production. I just, yeah, you know, just starting with a Jupyter notebook again. Yeah, just creating some snippets, then uh, switching to PyCharm to create some nice project with, you know, object-oriented programming, some basic tests and so on. Uh, but then I would drop these predictions in a CSV file and another guy, a backender would pick them up and or rsync. So just uh, copy them to another server. And then we had very similar issues here yeah, without any CICD. We, you know, just if IDs wouldn't match, we would go on SSH and fix problems in, in this production. And this backender did not like us. So he was cursing us data scientists because I guess we earned 50% more than him. And <laughs> that's, that was very annoying that he had to deal with all these issues. Uh, and yeah, indeed. So um, then at some point I migrated to the Netherlands and um, uh, I dropped the project, but uh, I think now it's successful. So it's, uh, it's uh, in active development and now guys actually developed best practices there with all the CICDs, code reviews and so on. But I indeed had this uh, startup vibe even in a large company. You, you have to go through this experience, right? Uh, you have to uh, try to do things incorrectly before you learn to, to do things correctly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, just uh, going on with this idea of startups. So uh, at the same time, I, um, I joined a fintech startup. So one, one of the huge advantages of companies like, uh, well, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, Uber, and all the others. And in Russia, these are Yandex, uh, Mail.True group, and um, maybe uh, Sber. Okay, so uh, one of the advantages is uh, the network. So there are many, many smart guys. And uh, at some point, one of the uh, yeah, pretty important directors of a huge department, he, for some reason, he, he passed my course, which I gave at Mail the Drew Group, so on machine learning. And he invited me to join a FinTech startup. Uh, so the guys were actually... Uh, they came up with an idea to sell Bitcoin in a mobile app. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty simple. Uh, well, actually, uh, yeah, such applications, su such banks already existed in, in, in Europe. And, but in Russia, I guess they had to solve many legal issues. And uh, Revolut actually existed at that point already. So it was also built by Russians, but then moved to Great Britain. And they already solved these legal issues to, to sell uh, Bitcoin in a mobile app. Uh, okay, so, so they were doing the same in Russia, but and they also bought something like four and a half thousand GPUs to mine Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> but then at some point they realized that well, you need special hardware uh, to mine Bitcoin, and then GPUs are not cool anymore. And they had uh, this factory somewhere in the center of Moscow, while yeah, you need cheaper electricity. You need you need to outsource these factories somewhere to you know to Hydra Electra station somewhere far away. Uh, and um, so at some point they realized they have, they had uh, four and a half thousand GPUs uh, and then they, they needed to sell better. So that, that's why they included AI in their pitch decks. And uh, that's why I was the first guy uh, doing some AI uh, for their startup. Well, from day one, I told, no, I'm not going to predict Bitcoin prices. I just don't believe in that. Okay, maybe again, maybe maybe if you, if, you have, if you have a huge team of very smart guys and you, you can do something like that in five years, but uh, I I refuse to do that alone. And uh, I was solving the task of uh, yeah sentiment analysis of uh, yeah on Bitcoin news, 
well, the idea was that uh, was to create uh, something like sentiment barometer, which would daily yeah, show you the sentiment around Bitcoin. Uh, and well, I was simply playing around with some state of the art, the art solutions in NLP. So that was before Hugging Face uh, released their uh, easy to use API. So I would fetch some GitHub repo, spent uh, almost all day just trying to launch something. And then eventually I, I bet I, I've beaten TFIDF and logistic regression by some 3%. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then at some point they, uh, the startup had uh, troubles raising money and they decided to that they don't need AI anymore. So yeah, a solution, well, um, yeah, eventually my solution didn't end up in, in production or at, at least, uh, yeah, it was not bringing money uh, but that was actually a great experience. And uh, on the go, I also learned that sometimes, yeah, labeling can be prohibitively expensive. So we had some Australian financial experts. We had a special Telegram chat with some 15 guys. Uh, <laughs> that was a, a fun, uh, that was fun just talking to them, but they were labeling this data and that was prohibitively expensive. So at some point I switched to a mechanical Turk. I was also labeling some of the data myself. And we also learned this lesson like, hey, you can spend too much money just labeling data. <laughs> yeah, and it will still not be good enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what happened with the GPUs, with all these GPUs? Did they sell well, them? Uh, at some point, they explored the problem, uh, the, the idea to, to sell it to, to deep learning researchers. So yeah, you, on one side, you, you, you've got these, all these miners uh, with um, many GPUs. At, and on another side, you've got deep learning researchers who need cheap uh, compute. And then you can build this bridge. Uh, I know that one startup already did that. Uh, and I think this, this startup also came to an idea to just rent GPUs. Uh, I don't know how they get rid, got rid of all these GPUs. Yeah, it would be probably not so easy to get there. Uh, did you say four and a half uh, thousands? Yeah, 4,500, 4, yeah. 40, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's a lot of GPUs. Yeah. So easy to, to get rid of so, so many. And then you move to the Netherlands, right? After working at this startup. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, so did you have this uh, startup uh, on your LinkedIn profile? Did you include it in uh, LinkedIn? Um, no, uh, not actually. So there was some maybe four or five months experience. And uh, well, I didn't mention them because I don't want yeah, any marketing interests to be heard. Uh, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, I don't want to mention this startup. <laughs> okay, so that's uh, one of the things he, data scientists don't mention on basically like small startups that uh, mining bitcoins, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then you moved to the Netherlands, and uh, yeah, so and you worked at a telecom company. Can you tell us uh, more about that? What did you do there? Yeah, yeah. So then I yeah uh, I switched to NLP, and uh, in this telecom company, uh, I also worked on a huge data well not huge but there is a actually a data mining task so we think of data mining as according to its definition so you've got a large data set and you want to find some useful signal somewhere there and so we had exactly this problem so at, at the telco operator we had many chats calls emails with with different complaints and actually there is a huge signal there so there are all the different problems reported via chats calls emails uh, well, it was all in Dutch, so I used Google Translate a lot. Uh, but it, you can imagine, yeah, people mentioned that they are P 
pissed off by some of the services. They they have some technical problems and so on. And so I, I build a service that would just classify these into different uh, broad groups like yeah, billing, general service, um, churn. So anything related to yes customer satisfaction and things like that. Um, that was also fun. Uh, I had to work with Dutch language at, at that time there were no good pre-trained uh, transformer models uh, in, yeah, in Dutch uh, and so we explored how we can how we can train a model in English and then uh, run it with Dutch and so all this multilinguality and uh, well in the end we um, I worked in a data science department uh, and uh, it was not properly managed so that was in general data science for such a company was like a luxurious car like Lamborghini. Uh, it's cool, expensive, but what if you don't know how to drive it? So I think for, for these managers of this uh, very old company, uh, that it was a challenge how to manage us. So we, we had one project which uh, yielded revenue. And there is also a small cool story about, about this project. So it's uh, called bet debt. So it's very similar to credit scoring. So when you, when you go to, to a shop and you, you'd like to take a loan for a mobile phone, they, yeah, they run a model which is akin to credit scoring. And so I went in my first days in the Netherlands, I went to, to the to KPN store to, to buy a mobile phone for my wife, an iPhone, of course. Uh, and, and then their system yeah, rejected my application for a loan. Uh, and well, the, the model was built by my colleagues. So I went to them like, hey guys, why, why was I refused? So I was literally able to go through through the learned coefficients with a shape or just visualize coefficients and understand why I was rejected. Uh, and the killer feature was uh, residence permit. So I, I had only a temporary permit for less than one year. And uh, well, typically what scammers would do, they, uh, they just uh, come to the Netherlands from some other uh, country. They, they take a hundred of uh, mobile phones in loans, and then they would escape and sell these phones uh, elsewhere and uh, so if you if your residence permit is shorter than one year you can be uh, yeah rejected um, so that was a project yielding revenue some several millions per year and that was a carte blanche for for us to do research to explore ideas so that was cool so this so first of all i had a perfect team there so just all the guys around me they were so nice and uh, it was the yeah the working style was so relaxed, especially after Russia. So Fridays uh, working so you, from home. You were looking for work-life balance, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So I moved to Netherlands for some work-life balance. Yeah, and uh, um, but we had too much freedom. Uh, so I I used this time to do research. I uh, with Amsterdam Data Science, I launched an initiative on exploring transfer learning in NLP. Uh, and that was nice because it uh, led me to to and to my new job. So uh, yeah, my would-be boss just uh, wrote an email to me like, "Hey, I know you from Amsterdam Data Science. Would you like to join as a senior machine learning scientist?" Uh, but uh, yeah, in the end, uh, if you maybe it's a bit philosophical, but if if you've got too much freedom and you 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 are lacking some a sense of impact, uh, that's also not good for your motivation. And uh, with all these lockdowns, I yeah, I switched uh, to another company. And uh, as a conclusion, yeah, from that part, so I, I I've got one more good question during the interview. So I, the question is uh, as simple as how many projects yielding revenue do you actually have running right now in production? Uh, 
you mean questions to the potential yeah. employer, right? Yeah, so questions you... to, to uh-huh. employers. Yeah. Uh-huh. And what if they say, hmm, well, zero? So then it's uh, like a red flag? Well, may, maybe, yeah, yeah. So you, then, you, you know, well, I, I like coming up with POCs with these proof, proof of concepts and doing research, but uh, at the same time, I don't want yeah, to feel this lack of impact. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting story. I, li- I liked your metaphor about the luxurious car that is cool but expensive. And uh, it's probably not easy to find people, management, who knows how to actually drive this car. Uh, especially in more traditional companies like telecom companies. And uh, yeah, so um, what I often saw is uh, uh, these companies, they work with consultants like McKinsey, BCG, or whatever. So they, they talk to them and the consultants say, you don't seem to be doing AI, but you should be. Like hire us and we will tell you how. So they, of course, hire. And these consultants start saying, hey, you need to hire like two, three data scientists. So they start hiring them. And then, of course, uh, consultants are very expensive. So companies uh, and uh, their contracts with them. And so now a company has uh, two, three data scientists and needs to figure out what to actually do with them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> that's I, I didn't uh, personally experience that. But uh, I heard uh, these stories from other people that uh, at the end, uh, most of these projects were successful. And then people would just... Uh, uh, be left alone uh, like having too much freedom so they would spend some time playing Kaggle <laughs> yeah. but you can play Kaggle only so much like you can play like for two months three months but then uh, like you start feeling bad about doing this at work right yeah yeah um so uh, just want to remind that if you want to ask any question about anything, you can um, uh, go to uh, live chat and there is a link to Slido, which is where you can put a question. And we actually have a question from uh, Wahid. It's not uh, related to our topic today, but I'm curious to, to know what is your take on that. We already talked about Kaggle a bit, <laughs> although like doing this uh, at work when uh, your company doesn't know how to keep you busy. So the question is, how important is it to have a digital presence for landing a data science job? Something like GitHub pages, personal data science blog, active Twitter account, Kaggle, and things like this. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's of critical importance, but it's a good additional feature. So. Uh... I would say the most important part in an interview is uh, just being able to describe your projects, your Im- uh, impact in that project in a disciplined way. And uh, as I tend to see, it, it gets more and more important as you your role matures. So when you are a junior, you might be challenged to you know to write a Fibonacci generator or take a der- derivative of some crazy function. But as you mature, yeah, they they get more interested in how can you actually change the company and the processes? And uh, that's why it's good to show uh, your experience from other projects, especially if you uh, changed the the way the company runs some processes, that's uh, very important to to describe it. And um, so the first exercise that I would recommend to everyone, again, is just to go through your LinkedIn profile and just analyzing your past experience and being able to describe all of your projects in, in, in detail and using active verbs, uh, I think Google has a nice instruction on how to, to reflect these in, in your CV. 
so really stating what you what was your role in the project so things like that and uh, all the rest i still think this is uh, this is important of course yeah my um yeah public uh, activities helped me a lot so like even yeah having a open machine learning course and having a guitar prepo with a uh, 7,000 stars wouldn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I cannot imagine a scenario there which would hurt. Well, yeah, maybe yeah. I actually can. I think you mentioned that uh, one of your managers didn't really, uh, wasn't really happy about that when you had this uh, important project. I think yeah, yeah, indeed. So over. there's a very subtle trade-off. So uh, I always kept some couple of hours per day for, for any creativity, reading blogs, uh, writing blogs, uh, and things like that. So... Uh, maybe it's also a way for me to, to avoid burnouts. Uh, and uh, honestly, I just, I'm not fascinating with an idea to work really hard for the company. Uh, why would you, right? So, well, <laughs> yeah. if, let's if hope are, nobody uh, from your current uh, managers, oh, uh, your current managers are from the Netherlands. They take these things uh, easier, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, in maybe, Europe, usually work-life balance is... Uh, yeah, yeah, well, like maybe some of my colleagues about. are also listening to this talk, but well, anyway, uh, anyway, I, I understand that if you if you work 12, 14 hours per day for your own startup, if you believe in that, if you think it's revolutionary, you actually have still little chance to to, <laughs> to, to rocket with, with this startup. But, but still, I understand that you can uh, leave at work, uh, working for your own startup, but I... Honestly, don't understand the uh, putting so much effort into someone else's company, uh, unless, of course, you are motivated with some stocks and it makes sense. That's why I always left a couple of hours per day, knowing knowing that I I would be distracted to some cool stuff like you know reading about causal inference or quantum machine learning or uh, things like that. I yeah I I just found this well for me the trade off was to so uh, just one more one more hack yeah just. Arrange a meeting with yourself. It's every day from 9 to 1 p.m. Uh, you just create a meeting with yourself and it's your focus time. Uh, you, you'll Likely you won't be distracted. So sometimes, of course, you have important meetings and you are asked to reschedule. But most of the time, yeah, you can do your stuff. Uh, well, as a data scientist, you can go into code. And I used the time also to, to work a bit on my side projects, on my public activities, uh, blogging, uh, shooting videos, and, and so on. Well, indeed, uh, indeed, I had some negative experience with that as well. So this mail.true mail project, the first one, uh, was maybe a bit uh, too involved in, in uh, running this open machine learning course. And uh, yeah, the, um, yeah, my, my main task at work uh, suffered. So yeah, there, there's a very subtle trade-off here. But I certainly recommend having some public activities, some nice talks. So if you... Uh, if you've solved some problem with uh, A-B tests and you can share your experience and you can describe all the nitty-gritty details and the caveats and how you resolve the issues, that might be already available uh, yeah, piece of information for someone else. And if you create five, six, seven talks like that, you can already be recognized within closed circles and that would uh, definitely help. But it's really hard, hard to put a label on it how valuable that is. Uh, in terms of yeah, spending your money. So it's a very personal, uh, so it's a, indeed, again, subtle trade-off here. Yeah, well, I think it is, uh, like it just uh, gives you a lot more opportunities that you otherwise would have, right? So yeah. one way, let, let's say, uh, if you want to measure this uh, in terms of money, so then uh, you can see this the next time you change a job, you can get a higher bump in, for your salary, right? Uh, 
so how much you can get so you can maybe just apply for a job and then you'll get a job uh but if you have some online presence then people will recognize you and then maybe you can just ask for more money and then this is how you can measure of course like uh to do a proper statement you would need to run a proper a test. you need to to take a group of people who do not have public activity then take a group of people who have public activity and then make them change the job and then see yeah. <laughs> that would probably take uh, quite uh, some time to run this experiment but uh, yeah my gut feeling is that it helps one thing you mentioned is um at the beginning like when you were answering this question that uh, when you describe you when you go through your linkedin profile you take your experience your job and then you need to uh to measure somehow to quantify the impact you had on your projects but what if these projects had negative impact you basically wasted six months of your uh time working on something that resulted in nothing and uh, yeah and you decided okay you want to look for a new job like how do you <laughs> like because this is the kind of thing we don't mention on our cvs right so i wouldn't say on my cv that uh, i wasted wasted so much time of uh, my company working on this project that resulted in nothing right so like it doesn't uh, really um, put me into a good uh, uh how to say light so it's not I, I don't become attractive by saying that uh so do you have any recommendations how we can actually have this uh, i don't know active verbs and measure measurable impact on our cvs when our projects aren't that great yeah, that's a very good question. And so all the stories that I share here, they are about this inconvenient truth that you actually, yes, exactly. yeah, you're, you're, it's self-promotion. It's uh, your LinkedIn profile uh, per, yeah, pursued some marketing goals, actually, uh, which is a euphemism for just lying, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, this marketing, self-promotion, yeah, these are, yeah, Put it, putting it a bit more politically correctly, it's not 100% truthful. And um, well, I still think it's worth it. So uh, yeah, uh, even if you, if you have a negative experience, so you can still sell it. So I would, I think next time I am in an in interview, I would describe this uh, language quality project where I actually took a decision to close the project until it's not too late. So yeah, failing fast. So I think it's, uh, first of all, I. I, I've got a gut feeling that no, not so many candidates describe such negative uh, experiences, mm -hmm. and this can uh, uh, actually underline this this difference. So I can, well, maybe a bit show off uh, just describing my negative project. But I also think it's more about the yeah, decision making. So I, I think next time I can actually describe uh, yeah such a project. Uh, well, but if you just want to put it on LinkedIn, I would say yeah, then then probably you, you don't need to be very specific about all the financial goals in the projects and things like that. So just describe it in general. <laughs> um, yeah, I have some, on my LinkedIn profile, I also have some pretty general descriptions because, well, because of all the issues discussed here. Uh, yeah, just be sure that um, talking to, her, to, to your next potential employee, employer, you can, you can defend this project and you can also share some lessons learned from the project. Yeah, nice suggestion. So we still have uh, some time left. Um, um, and maybe you have uh, one or two stories you want to share? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I have. Or maybe just general tips. Uh, I don't know. Up to you. 
I have a couple more funny projects. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, we, they, uh, yeah, get get us back to to my youth probably. Um, well, uh, also, I'm also not very comfortable about business trips, and maybe I can share a story about uh, a Russian yeah, system integrator. So, um, in my masters, uh, I. I I switched to, yeah, I joined a company, well, it's in Russia and its name wouldn't tell you anything, but it's um, it's an Oracle partner in Russia and they had a very uh, primitive monetization scheme. They, well, half of all the revenue was coming, uh, came from reselling Oracle licenses. So for all small different companies across Russia who want to cooperate, col collaborate with Oracle, they just go through the system integrator and then they buy the licenses. So it's half of the whole revenue. Another 49% was uh, the revenue coming from a corporate uh, uh, studying center. So they just gave courses on uh, databases, uh, management, Java, and so on. And now only 1% of all the revenue came from the actual development. And uh, that's approximately the role of data science in general in business, just 1% of the whole revenue. Uh, yeah, very simple heuristic, yeah. And, uh, and uh, well, I spent, I was still a student, so I spent uh, more than a year in a corporate center. So I need to be grateful to this employer. So yeah, they invested a lot in, into me. So I studied all the, yeah, even, even Hadoop uh, at that point. Uh, but then when I joined the actual projects, I went to, to Russian city Perm. It's, well, it's almost Siberia. It's very close to Ural Mountains. So, yeah, you, you've got this Ural Mountains separating Europe from Asia. And so Perm is just a bit to the west from Ural Mountains. And to the east, yeah, it goes, yeah, Siberia starts, basically. Oh, well, so so I, I went to, to, to a business trip where I needed to... So I, at the time, I worked as a business intelligence uh, architect. So the work itself was actually pretty pretty good. So uh, uh, at some times, challenging. So you, you work with a corporate data warehouse then you need to build some logic around the warehouse and then you also have a presentation layer and the final goal is to to make creating reports very easy so that you just with a couple of clicks you create a nice dashboard which you can show to your manager ceo or anyone so sometimes it was challenging i needed to to think <laughs> well but uh, <laughs> <laughs> think at work well. yes, sometimes uh, but at the same time this business trip was was really crazy so uh they sent us in in winter in perm it's minus 30 and um uh project manager didn't take into account that we actually live in a hotel in the weekends so uh the uh, term the, the financial sheet wasn't actually uh, thought through well and they just made us work uh in the weekends as well uh and that was uh, yeah. Was the taxi would pick up uh, us up at uh, some seven thirty a.m. Uh, and then uh, yeah, again at minus thirty, it was windy, so we just jump into the taxi. Uh, so the taxi drives us to the company, and then we sit there till eight p.m. And then back uh, another taxi back uh, to the hotel, and then you don't see the sun at all. Uh, and uh, well, I spent. Yeah, and, and I had three business trips like that. One of them was just three weeks in a row with, with weekends. So it's just 21 days in a row. At some point I said, no, I don't care. I, after working, after all Saturday at work, I just said, no, I brought a, a 
I, I played ice hockey with with, uh, with Permian with guys from Perm. I, I just said no, I'm I'm not working on Sunday. But of course, it it's uh, I could have been fired. I don't know. Uh, so now I'm maybe a lesson learned from these stories that you you need to be careful actually with the business trips. Um, and uh, well, I, I also have a feeling that you 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 have to work more in a business trip and to satisfy your customer. And I, to be honest, I just don't enjoy this business model where you have to satisfy your customer. So because, well, these data science projects, at least at least data science projects, they are very risky. So you you, you always have a have a risk that you that the project is not profitable, and then you you gradually turn into your customer's slave. I don't like the this, that feeling. And as for business trips, maybe someone would argue, maybe well, of course, it's a way to explore uh, the country, the world. But what I also see in uh, Naspers, let's say, yeah, I know your company belongs to Naspers. And yes. We have, <laughs> yes. We have its headquarters here in Amsterdam, and I know the guy from, exactly. from this company. It's it's a crazy lifestyle. So this week you're one week you're in Brazil, another week you're in Gu uh, Guinea, uh, then to Russia, and it, of course it's very challenging for your work-life balance. Yeah. Well, now things are different. Now. Uh they don't need to travel that much because well, things are in Zoom anyways. But maybe next year, the life uh, will get back to normal and they will be back to on the plane again. Yeah, we'll yeah. get back to their normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe somebody, uh, uh, some, maybe somebody will not. Yeah, so um, it's time to wrap up. Do you have any last words before we finish? Yeah, I just wanted to say that, well, these... Um, Failures are fine to some to some point. Well, unless you are fired, <laughs> and uh, I think it's a very nice experience, and it's it's good to understand that well, all the people around you they're not actually not all of them are much better than you. So there is only one, well, maybe zero point three percent of people are of course smarter than you. But uh, all the people, all your colleagues, they are not robots. They they they're not bringing millions every every year to their companies. And so it's well important to understand that they also have their failures. So it's a, I think it's it's good for your self-esteem. Uh, but at the same time, these failure, failures are very important, I think, to to live through. Uh, so it's okay to 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 make mistakes. And uh, so you can listen to talks like like this one. But it's still important to to just uh, feel it on with your own skin. Uh, and uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, right. So you have to try doing these things as a sage into your production environment and then deploying things through Git, right? To feel uh, like how good things can be like when you do it properly. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not recommending to do this actually, but it's uh, something that uh, by doing this, you see um, the benefits of doing things uh, normally. Like the, the right way. Yeah. So finally, can, can people... only, uh, yeah. Finally, I can only wish you all the good failures that don't make <laughs> you leave the company. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, how can uh, people find you? Uh, Twitter. Whoa! I, I have to to recall my my nick there. I think it's. I, I'll put this in the description. Okay. Okay. Uh, great. Yeah. So Twitter, I'm LinkedIn. What are the? the I've got a, yeah, I've got a YouTube channel. Yeah. So I mostly active i guess on on twitter yeah okay so i'll put your twitter in the in the description and if people want to reach out to you they can use twitter 
thanks for finding time to uh, to join us today. Uh, I know you have a tight schedule. This is the third talk you give today, so I imagine that uh, now you want to to take some rest from talking, maybe drink some hot tea. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, so thanks for joining us today, for sharing your experience with us. Thanks for talking about things that um, they're like not everyone would be comfortable talking about things like this. So thanks for uh, for doing this, and uh, also thanks for everybody for joining us today and for watching our chat with Yuri. Yep, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me.